You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Take your Bibles while you're standing. We're going to jump in and get into the reading, right into the message tonight. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 is where we will be tonight and just read the first five verses of this chapter. First Peter chapter 1 and uh, we'll begin reading verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the dead. And that phrase is key tonight, lively hope. We have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is one of those passages you just want to keep reading. It's just full, it's rich, and we'll refer to a few more verses later. But, but I, tonight I, I, just, I was trying to figure out and asking the Lord what he would have me to bring. And, and uh, I just felt like I should bring something um, in, encouraging tonight. And sometimes you need, you need a, we need a reminder of where to go to find hope when it's hard. Uh, because it's hard sometimes, isn't it? Life, it's hard. It's not always easy. Uh, and it's good for us because we get our eyes off of what can't help us have hope. Or we get our eyes off of what can help us to have hope. And we focus on things that can't help us to have hope. So tonight I just want to focus on that thought. It will just be simple thought tonight. And I'm calling it hope when it's hard. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and bless us as we gather around it. I pray that you would speak through your Holy Spirit by illuminating the word of God to our hearts. Open our minds, open our willingness, Lord, our, our desire to follow you as we ought to. God, I pray that these thoughts, even if they're simple, I pray that they would be a help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. When I was in, in fifth grade, I told a story about fifth grade last week playing baseball, so I figured I'll just carry the theme. It's not sports this time, but when I was in fifth grade, we moved from Abilene, Texas, where my dad was a pastor, and we moved to Evanston, Wyoming, and that was a cultural change and a weather change for our family, for sure. Uh, I do feel like God was preparing me, though, for South Dakota. I lived in Wyoming before, so um, it's not windy here. The chain, chains don't stand out on their end like they do in Wyoming when the wind's blowing really hard. So, um, 
we moved to Wyoming, and, uh, and my dad was pastoring a small church, and it was kind of almost closing down. And I don't know, I could tell you this story. Someday I will. It was really a step of faith, and God really blessed it. And, uh, and, but one of the things that we really weren't that aware of was the weather and was driving, specifically driving in weather, like many of you are used to driving in. And uh, when I was in sixth grade, my sister, who was two grades ahead of me, she's 14 months older than me, her name is Rochelle, and actually her and her family are coming up for Thanksgiving, so hopefully you'll get to meet her uh, this year. Um, but she, when she was in uh, eighth grade, I was in sixth grade, and I'm not going to go into all of it because it's a long testimony, and someday I'll probably tell you that too. But she was diagnosed with a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is leuke- similar to leukemia, cancer, but as a young girl, 12 or 13 years old. And what's interesting is when I was 16, I was diagnosed with cancer as well. So my mom, uh, my mom has written about that in a book, and maybe I, if I can track some of those down, I think some of you do have it. But um, God, God really worked in our family, and, and it wasn't always easy. My sister was, was definitely much more sick than I was in, in her battle with, with cancer. And we were in Evanston, Wyoming. If you look at a map, it's the very southwest corner on I-80. We're right next to the border of Utah. Uh, we we're about 80 miles from Salt Lake City, Utah, which that really was a blessing in disguise because she had, it was stage four cancer. It was very aggressive um, but what that Children's Medical Center, the hospital there in, in Salt Lake City, Utah, was, is, really was one of the finest hospitals for children that were dealing with her kind of cancer at that time. So God knew all of that. He had us in the right place. Um, but, you know, it was 80 miles away. And when she, for 18 months, she uh, went through chemotherapy every other week. We would drive as a family, typically, I would, many times we'd be at school, but sometimes as a family, we would drive to Salt Lake City on a Thursday every other week, and uh, she would go down for her treatments. And when you're doing something like that, you don't really get to plan around the weather. You know, you just, you, you just have to go. It's one of those things you've got to do, and every other week, we know it's coming up on the calendar, and whether or not the weather's bad, you just got to go. So we would get in our, I think at that point we had a Ford Aerostar minivan, and I believe it was rear-wheel drive. I, whatever it was we were driving, it was rear-wheel drive. Um, and we would drive from Evanston, Wyoming to Salt Lake City. It's about 80 miles. Seems like it's not a big deal, 80 miles. Except between Evanston and Salt Lake City, there's a pass called Parley's Summit. And Parley's Summit is this pass that literally just goes up over the top of the Wasatch Mountains and then drops back down into Salt Lake City, Utah. And some of the most terrifying moments of my young life were spent driving over Parley Summit in that, that minivan, that rear-wheel drive minivan. Because, you know, you, everything would look great down in Salt Lake City and things look fine, but then you start going up the mountain and you realize, no, there's a blizzard up here. And it happened more times than I can count. It seemed like just about every time we're trying to drive back in the wintertime, we would run into snow. And, and, and my dad hadn't been that experienced driving in it. I mean, it had been, we'd been in Texas. And so we would do things every time, the same things every time. You know, my dad would say, okay, everybody go to the back of the van because it's rear-wheel drive. And we need some traction. So we'd all pile in the back of the van and try to give some traction and... 
and uh, we'd start driving up the, the, the pass, and then he would slow down, and if there was a, a, a plow truck or something, that was a real godsend, because you could just get behind it and follow it along the way, and, but it's amazing how you start to learn how to drive in it a little bit, but you never really get used to it. It's never fun. I remember the day that he realized, my dad realized if you turn off the, the low beams and just use your fog lights, you can actually see a lot better because the snow's not coming at your car. You all know this. I'm speaking to people that drive in this stuff just for fun. So I'm not going to go into details. It's amazing how much better we could see when we would adjust the lights. And, and, and what's interesting, though, is I remember specifically as a kid times where we would drive over the summit and go into Salt Lake City and the weather was beautiful and the skies were clear and everything was great. And then we're coming back the same route, same freeway, Interstate 80, and you couldn't see over the hood of your car. And I remember in, in my mind thinking, you know, we were just here and everything was okay a few hours ago. And now, I mean, there's mountains, there's a drop off on this side and there's semis passing you because they don't slow down. And you guys that drive truck, you know, no offense, Eric's back there smiling. He's like, you're right, we don't slow down. You know, if you can't see how something will end, it's hard to have hope in situations like that. And I remember just being terrified. That trip over Parley Summit is a little bit like life. In that when you can't see what's ahead, it's easy to lose hope. And when the snow's coming at you when you're driving and you don't know what's around the corner and you don't know if there is a corner, you can't even see. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to lose hope uh, to lose hope and to be, just fall into despair when there's no visibility, when you can't see. Hope, when it's hard, can be tough to come by, like driving in a storm when you can't see. But in life, it's like sometimes people are difficult. I don't know if you knew that or not. Sometimes people are difficult. And what should be a simple, and by, just by use of allegory, just what should be a simple drive a, a Saturday afternoon drive through the country, it feels like it's never going to end because of, of somebody being difficult. Sometimes people make bad choices and all the clarity that you had yesterday, suddenly you can't see past the hood of your, your vehicle in life. And sometimes your plans fall apart and you face major disappointment and sometimes an election doesn't go the way you wanted it to. And sometimes a city council loses their minds and they want to do something that makes you want to scratch your head, you know? By the way, if you don't want that to happen, I recommend you contact the city council and, and let them hear your voice in a Christ-like spirit. Let them hear your voice. If you don't want a mask mandate, I mean, it does us no good to be mad about it afterwards if we don't take any steps to try to prevent it before, okay? So that's done. All my, all my political preaching's done. So where do we look for hope when it's hard? See, if you can't see ahead, how do you keep moving forward? I mean, my dad didn't learn that lesson in, until a couple of times and realized you have to adjust the light so you have a different perspective and you see better. But where's the hope to keep driving through the storm of life until it's over when it seems hopeless? Well, the first thing that we as Bible believers have to do is turn off our emotions and turn to the truth. Because it's pretty easy to get caught up and the emotions, and to get caught up in everything that's going wrong, and you forget, but, but emotions, they provide no lasting help when it comes to hope. They don't provide hope. See, we need to remember what is true, and in many ways, this is similar to the concept I preached a few months ago during COVID, and, and, and that we must stop focusing on what if and focus on what is. 
See, what if is full of hopeless emotion. What if is not something you can control. You don't even know what's around the corner. You can't see past the hood of your car. That's what if. But what is what we know about God? God is full of hopeful truth. You want hope? Stop focusing on what if and focus on what is. And that really is what Peter is dealing with. He's dealing with some important what if statements here in 1 Peter 1. He's reminding us that in the midst of all the what if, there are some things that are true. And when you read what he has to say, you begin to realize there's a word. And folks, I want you to catch this. There's a word that should never make its way into a Christian's vocabulary. And that word is hopeless. That word should never make its way into our vocabulary. And yet, as a person, as a human being, I have felt hopeless before. And as a pastor, I deal with people and talk to people that at times sure do seem hopeless. But it shouldn't be that way. And this small letter known to us as First Peter is a book of hope. Peter didn't write it to teach or teach them or settle doctrinal disputes or he didn't write it to confront them like Paul did, the Corinthians. He was writing it to to people that needed a dose of hope. See, he wrote this book around 67 AD and many assume he wrote it from Rome and that's significant because it was the seat of the Roman government which at that time, as I mentioned this past week, at that time it was ruled by Nero. And we're going to talk about him more in just a minute. But suffice it to say, Nero was not friendly to Christian causes. Peter wrote to Christians who had been dispersed. They'd been scattered and and, and some of them likely because of persecution. But but many of them simply because uh, Christianity was spreading. They were scattered abroad and scattered about in different places. And so he specifically writing to this group of, of Christians and, and churches in, this, in a place called Asia Minor. And Asia Minor today is, is where the, the country of Turkey is. And Turkey's actually part of Turkey's in Europe, part of Turkey's in Asia. Asia Minor would be the part of Turkey that, that sits on the Asian continent. So he's writing this to them in modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor to provide some hope to these scattered people of God. And he gives them two contrasting positions. He, he, he really gives them kind of two things to look at at the very beginning. He starts with how the world sees them and then how God sees them. So he, he, he kind of, that's how he structures his letter here at the beginning. He says, this is how the world sees you, but here's how God sees you. And so we start with the thought, well, how does the world see them? We'll look at first, verse one. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered. See, he calls these believers strangers. Another use, here in 1 Peter, another use of this word, this Greek word in the New Testament is pilgrim. And it means somebody who comes, in, who comes to live as a, in, as a temporary resident in a foreign land. And, and, and I know that that happens uh, maybe quite a bit in, our, in the city that we came from in Stillwater. Uh, people would move from all around the world and come to Oklahoma State University and they would be there just temporarily while they're going to school. And they would sometimes bring their families, but many times they would come alone. They were strangers. They were pilgrims in America. And they would come from 
from all the continents and come to study. And if, you, if you've got a university, and you know, I think Brookings probably would be similar. They come from all over the place to go to the, uni- the university here in the United States. Uh, now, so that's what he calls them, strangers or pilgrims. It's a temporary resident in a foreign land. But that doesn't mean the people he's writing to are immigrants. It doesn't mean he's writing to people that are in a place where they weren't born. Um, you know, many of them likely were living in the land of their birth. But they had become, folks, listen, they had become citizens of heaven. They were saved. Jesus Christ had changed their lives. And so when he calls them strangers, he's not just saying pilgrims as in your, your native uh, country. He's talking about uh, pilgrims as in they're Christians in a land that doesn't want them. They're strangers in a place that's not friendly to them. They, they no longer fit in like they once had. Remember, the world power at this time is, it lies in Rome. And, and these cities in Asia Minor, they were under Roman rule, like most cities in this part of the country at this time in history. And as Peter wrote this letter, persecution is increasing It had started in 64 AD when Rome burned down. And you've probably heard the stories of Rome burning and Nero uh, was being blamed for it. And he needed a a scapegoat, so he blamed the Christians. And it was, some say that Nero set the fire. I don't know if he did or not, but he certainly used the fire to further his political agenda. Which that sounds a little bit familiar with 2020, doesn't it? I'm not saying that people started COVID, but people have certainly used COVID to further their political agenda. So we'll just call those people Nero from now on. So he blamed them for the fire. He blamed the Christians and, and, and it turned into great persecution. It actually became illegal to be a Christian. It wasn't hard for people to hate Christians. As William Barclay, a great commentator, he points out, he says, God's people were already the objects of slander and hostility. They were strangers in every sense of the word, even in their own countries. Their commitment to Jesus Christ caused them to be peculiar. You know, people don't typically like what they don't understand. People don't typically like what, what is different. And, and so these Christians, they're living differently. They're acting differently. They're citizens of heaven and they were not well accepted. And now that it's illegal to be a Christian and Nero has sanctioned uh, persecution against the Christians, awful things happened. They were victimized, awful atrocities. History says that Christians were rolled in, uh, in, in tar and they were tied to poles and lit on fire to light the pathways through Nero's gardens. They were wrapped in animal skins and fed to hungry dogs. And many were crucified and tortured. And if you want to read about those, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs and books that tell the stories of of the things that Christians went through just simply because they named the name of Jesus Christ. Christians became the object of persecution everywhere, not just in Rome. I mean, throughout, and the persecution had spread all the way here in 1 Peter to Asia Minor. That's what they're dealing with. We could read in later and talk about the fiery trials. Think it not strange, Peter writes. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trials that you're going through. I mean, they were going through it. And the truth is, though, we're still strangers. This whole heading, this whole thought is how the world sees them, but how the world sees us. They were strangers, but folks, we're strangers too. I mean, to follow Christ puts us in the minority. 
And maybe we've grown used to uh, how friendly the United States has been to Christianity and the relative freedom that we have to enjoy and, and practice it unhindered. But that's not the norm in history. I mean, mo- through most of history, most of God's people have suffered greatly to follow Christ. It has not been easy. Being a Christian in America has cost us relatively little to this point. But there's no doubt, is there? There's no doubt that it's changing. There's no doubt that our country is growing more and, and, and more hostile to the idea of Jesus Christ and the idea of, of Christianity. We are at a point where if you truly live for Christ, you will not fit in with this culture. You know, this point, they may, the United States, maybe it's put up with it, but the cancel culture we live in is changing that too. And I think it's silly right now. We look at it like it's just silly. But if the mindset is you can't tell me anything that I don't want to hear, where does that end? You know, right now, um, they're allowed to, to burn buildings and take down statues because they don't like what they're hearing. And, and they're basically running, uh, running without any checks. So to claim exclusive truth, which is what we do as Bible believers, not in a hostile way, not in an unfriendly way, not in a prideful way, but in a way because we believe in what Jesus Christ said, that he said, I'm the, I am the way, the only way. I am the truth, the only truth. I'm the life, the only life. We have exclusive truth, and, and we want people to hear it, but people don't want to hear it. And we'll be, tell, basically, then we're going to be giving our message of the gospel to people that have been trained to throw fits when they don't get their way. No one can tell them they're wrong about their lifestyle or their morals or their beliefs or about getting what they want or about their truth. And being a follower of Christ is about holiness, and I, I, I know that's not popular. I preached about it last week as well. But being a follower of Christ is first about your des- desire to commit to holiness. Not blending in. The standards of our culture and the speech and the music and the entertainment and the attitude toward God's holiness, it should make us think, I don't belong here. I'm a stranger you ever been in a place where you're looking around and you're thinking, I don't belong here? My, my, my wife and I, when we went to see the Thomases in India, I remember, you know, we were, I was standing on the airplane and I was standing in line for the, for the bathroom because it was a long line. We were coming back from India and I was looking around and, and I looked in the airplane. I was standing there and all of these faces all around and I realized I'm the only non-brown face that I see. And I've taken that for granted my whole life because I live in America. But in that moment, I suddenly felt what it was like to be the guy that singled out. Who's sitting like, I don't know, do I, should I be standing here? Because they're looking at me funny. And then when my wife got up, you know, she's got freckles on her arms. And they were really intrigued by those things. <laughs> like, man, I don't know if I belong here. I felt out of place. You ever feel out of place? You ever been somewhere where you're feeling out of place? And, 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 well, listen, as a Christian, we ought to feel, honestly, we ought to feel that all the time. Because if we're trying to live for the Lord and we're trying to live for the kind of holiness that he desires, then we should be saying, thinking a lot more than we probably do. I'm a stranger here. If we find ourselves having no problems fitting in, then I think we've probably likely 
bought into the kind of watered-down Christianity, America's version of Christianity, and I believe it's come as a result of living somewhere where it hasn't cost us very much to follow Jesus Christ. And, and I don't want persecution, and I don't want things to happen uh, that go against the, our church and against our, our stand for Christ, but in some ways, I honestly think we might find out, uh, we might become stronger disciples if we faced a little bit of pressure. We might we at least start finding out how strong we really are. We're strangers. And if we're not, we're likely not disciples. That's who we are in relation to the world. That's how they view us. And there's not much hope in it. You're a stranger. You don't fit in. You don't get to live how you want. Your friends probably won't want to hang out with you anymore. If you start to try to be holy like Christ and you have, you have to say no to things, you have to look and act and dress and speak differently. And you might say, I didn't know what I was signing up for. Well, a lot of people don't. And it's hard and it gets harder. And you say, boy, thank you, Pastor. You really, this is so encouraging. I just... I want to say thank you for this message tonight. I'm glad it could be a help. Now, honestly, though, you most appreciate hope after you experience hardness. You know, if you don't have, if you've not been through anything that's all that difficult to, to have hope that it ends, it doesn't matter that much to you because you haven't been through something very hard. But you likely don't, don't really appreciate hope until you experience hardness and that's what Peter is trying to help them to see. He's, he's acknowledging, here's how the world sees you. You're strangers and you're scattered. But then he comes in with some hope. Because he says, yes, the world sees you as strangers. But he says, but listen, here's how God sees you. Look at verse 2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Wow. He starts with this word elect. And election, elect, it's on my mind tonight. But you know, this, there's a greater election talked about in the Bible. And that is right here. That elect simply means they were chosen by God in a particular and unique sense. They were specially chosen by God. And listen, everyone gets a little bit afraid when you talk about these verses. This verse does not teach God chooses who gets to be saved. See, election applies to everybody in that God makes salvation available to the whole world. He makes it available to every man. Man is saved or not saved based upon that man's personal choice whether or not to receive salvation. God does not say, You're, yes, you, no, you, yes, you, no, you. That's not the point here. See, elect means God chose to make salvation available. He, he chose to make it available to every man. Therefore, anyone who's saved is elected by God. He, he wanted you to be saved. He wants everybody to be saved. That all should come to repentance. Now listen, not, not just chosen, specially chosen. That's what it means. So how does God see you? The world sees you as a stranger. The world sees you as somebody that doesn't fit in. The world sees you as somebody that you used to be fun and now you're not anymore. So I don't really want to call you on the weekend because you're not the same kind of person. That's how the world sees you. But how does God see you? Well, he only sees you like this. You're his uniquely chosen child. And I say that sarcastically. 
I mean, he, he has a special plan. If you're elected, he has a special plan for you. And yesterday's election was big for our country. And our presidents and our leaders, they're elected by people. And people don't always make good choices in elections, as, as we might find out. But that's not the most important election. There's a much more important election. Don't let that election get you down. There's a much more important one in your life. And that is that God elected you. God chose you. He wanted you to be saved. He made salvation available to you. You have the opportunity to be saved because God elected you. You want hope when it's hard. You want something to give you some hope when it's difficult, when you're feeling out of step, or maybe you're feeling rejected by the world, or maybe you're unwanted, or you're persecuted, or you're just plain lonely, and there may be somebody in here like night, like that tonight. Here's your hope. You may not fit in down here, but God elected you to fit in with him up there. You've been elected. You've been chosen. You still had a choice to make, and I'm not a Calvinist by any stretch. That's not what I'm saying. I think you understand what I'm saying is that God chose you to be saved. You had to make the choice too. His foreknowledge means he knew we'd receive him. He's omniscient. He knows everything. It just means that God knew what we'd be like. He knew our flaws. He knew our shortcomings. He knew our sin. He knew our weaknesses, folks, and yet he still elected us. And as the song says, he knew me, yet he loved me. You want some hope when it's hard? Just remember that God knew you and yet he loved you. He loved you so much to make salvation available to you. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit. That's the second phrase there. Sanctification just means to be set apart. This could refer to the Holy Spirit setting us apart from the world to God at salvation. It could refer to the process of sanctification. Sanctification is just being set apart, becoming more less and less like what you were and more and more like Jesus Christ. Listen, the Holy Spirit works tirelessly in your life to sanctify you, to make you more and more like the Son of God. Don't forget that constant effort that the Spirit puts in to make you more like Jesus. If you want some hope, remember that. Somebody's always working on you. The Holy Spirit's always working on you. He's always working in your heart and prompting you and convicting you. And yes, we could push him away enough that we stop listening, but he's always working he wants you to be like Jesus Christ. To be conformed to the image of Christ is the, is the primary goal of your life. And the Holy Spirit's working to help you get there. Verse 2, again, to the end of it, it says, The sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Obviously, it plays a, an important role in our position before God. First John 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. You know, there's so much more. I, and I'm not going to be able to get into all of it tonight. And we won't do it here, but just know this. You see what's happening here? The entire Trinity is on your side. God the Father elected you according to his foreknowledge. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you by constantly working on you. And the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to you to cleanse you. They're all three, the Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in your salvation and in your Christian life. All three. 
So for, for a Christian to say, I don't have any hope, there's nobody on my side, there's nobody working for me, there's nobody that really has interest in me, let me just remind you what Peter writes about in verse 2, and that God the Father has elected you, and the Holy Spirit has sanctified you, and Jesus Christ's blood has been applied to cleanse you. Don't tell me that there's not someone working on your side. The whole trinity is for you. All three of them. Talk about good news in the midst of bad news. Talk about hope when it's hard. Your position in Christ can't change. And knowing that, Peter follows up this truth at the end of verse 2 and says, Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. I mean, can you imagine that? What he's saying is that in the midst of all this persecution, in the midst of all the trials and the struggles and the hardships, you can have peace. And not just a little peace. He says multiplied peace. Abundant peace peace. So here's the first takeaway I want to give you tonight. Takeaway number one, if you, if you write things down, maybe this, you could write this down as a way to just give you some hope. See, the world looks at you like strangers, but God sees you as family. The world looks at you like you're a stranger, but God the Father sees you as family. See, you want hope? Remember that phrase. Peter calls him God the Father here. We can look at verse 3 and, and it says that we've been begotten, us, he's begotten us again. Begotten means to, to produce, to be born again, to be born anew. In the same, so here's what he's saying. In the same way that a baby's born into a family, we've been born into God's family. We're new creatures, folks. And you say, I just don't have much hope. But let me just remind you, the world may see you as a stranger, but God sees you as family. And so here's a thought to consider. Are you going to live according to how the world sees you or how God sees you? Because in the end, you have to make the choice. You're going to decide if I'm going to let the world determine how I operate my life. They see me as a stranger. And so I'm going to adjust my life to maybe kind of fit in so they don't call me a stranger anymore. I want to fit in so that they're not looking at me funny. Or are you going to look to how God views you as family and say, no, that's the view I need to focus on. See, the world says you're a stranger. And if you live your life focused on your standing with the world, get ready for a bunch of disappointment. Get ready for despair. Get ready for hopelessness because you're standing with the world. It will never get better. You're standing with the world. can't. It, it will never improve. As a matter of fact, we're seeing in recent years here in our own country, it's getting worse. So if you focus on how the world views you, you will have no hope. But if you stop dwelling on your position with the world and you consider how God sees you, that he sees you as elect and he sees you as sanctified, he sees you as cleansed, he sees you as a son or he sees you as a daughter, he sees you as family. If you will stop looking at how the world views you and look at how God views you, you'll find that that perspective is what you need to navigate this journey when it's hard. It gives you hope. That perspective allows us to see how it ends. Look at at the result of Peter choosing to focus on God's view. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Well, that sounds like a lot of good stuff. I don't even know if my mind can be wrapped around all of that's there, but I just know that's what I want. Those are the kind of promises I want. 
And if I focus on God's view, even when it's hard, it gives me living hope. Because why? Well, Jesus Christ is alive. That's what he says. We've been begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the world sees us as strangers. That's fine. Guess what? This whole world system someday will come crashing down. It will come to an end. And it's so sad that countless Christians pour their lives into a system that's destined for failure. Countless of God's people will live their whole lives. And they're trying to to adjust themselves so the world sees them not as a stranger. The world maybe will accept them. And they're they're thinking, well, the world has that. So if, if they have that and they look like they're happy, that's what I want. So people live for more money. And yet one day it will all burn up. And parents are pushing their kids to be all about sports or all about their, their college scholarships. But one day, you know, we all will pass. And, we, and to spend all the money and time and investment and energy to the neglect of God's kingdom. I mean, when in the end, it will all fade away. Maybe there are people, God's people, trying to fit in with the world around them. But in a few years, I think about teenagers. They, they live so hard to make people like them and to fit in and to not be a stranger. And when they graduate high school and those friends disperse, they never see them again. So they spent three or four years trying to live according to their friends' view of them. And in the end, their friends are long gone. And in every one of those examples... We allowed the world's view of us to shape our lives. And the world is good at making us think success matters the most. And wealth and retirement, a big house and a nice car and great vacations. And if we focus on the world's view, we'll assume that that a great education is more important, parents, than establishing godly character in our children. Because if you read, again, I read the platforms the other night, and education is what they are relying on to fix everything. And if we buy into the world's view, we'll say, okay, that matters more than raising my children for the Lord. And in the end, we might have smart kids, but if they're not godly, that doesn't do anything for them. We'll operate as if work matters. Men, as if work matters more than attendance in God's house, because that's how they view it. The world says work is more important, money is most important. Make the money, get the stuff, work hard and everything else is expendable, including church. And you can do that, but, but if you will at the end be hollow. Likely lose your children, likely lose your family if you don't seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what's interesting about Matthew 6.33 is he says if we just do it the right way, he'll add all those things to us. Yeah, we just skip the kingdom and put work first and money first and our careers first and our hobbies first and anything else because that's how the world says it's supposed to be done. But everything the world promises, they can never deliver on. We must live our lives according to God's view. You know, he doesn't see us as strangers. He sees us as family. He sees us as having eternal life. He sees us as sanctified and cleansed by the blood of his own son, which he, him, he sent. I mean, and through his son, we have a lively hope, a living hope. Jesus Christ is alive. 
That's why our hope never runs out. The only hope you have to make sense of the hardness is that Jesus Christ is alive. And if he's alive, folks, whatever we do for him, however hard it is, however much we suffer, whatever it costs us, in the end, he will be there to make it worth it. That's the hope we have. That's Peter's message. The world cannot make the promise that it ends well. And as a matter of fact, the, the world can only make empty promises. But, one, but look at the promises we have through our living hope. Verse 4, I'll read it again. Here are the promises you have if you live according to God's view. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh yeah, all you have, if you live according to God's view, all you have is a promise of a new body that will not fade away in a place called heaven that you get to live in forever. Charles Spurgeon said this. It's also called a living hope. Because it is imperishable. Try to follow. Other hopes fade like withering flowers. The hopes of the rich. The boasts of the proud. All these will die out as a candle when it flickers in the socket. The hope of the greatest monarch has been crushed before our eyes. He set up the standard of victory too soon. And has seen it trailed in the mire. There is no unwaning hope beneath the changeful moon. What he says is anything down here, will, if it's hope, it will fade. There is no unwaning hope beneath the, the changeful moon. The only imperishable hope is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Jesus Christ. I love how he says that. That's hope when it's hard. Is that we stop looking around at how the world says is what the world says is successful, what the world says is fun, what the world says matters. We stop looking around down here at the world's view of things, and we look up, and we are reminded of God's view of things, and we're reminded that Jesus Christ is alive, and every promise He's ever made is still intact. So that brings me to takeaway number two. And if you write things down, maybe write this down too. Today's difficulties don't cancel tomorrow's promises. Today's difficulties don't cancel tomorrow's promises. See, in a, in a culture that's all about canceling, the cancel culture, there's one thing they'll never be able to cancel, and those are the promises we find in God's word. Rest in that. Have, have multiplied peace in that. Let that be your hope when it's hard. And when you can't see past the hood of your vehicle, just look up. Because today's difficulties can't cancel tomorrow's promises. And I want to close by reading verses 5 down through verse 9. And I don't add much commentary and that's a hard thing for a preacher to say. But I don't think it needs it. And as we read, what I want to remind you of is that Peter, what Peter did to bring hope when it's hard, he focused on what's true. Not on the emotions of the day, not on the bad news, not on the world's view. He focused on the promises we have through a living Savior. Look at verse 5, and I'll read down through verse 9, and just try to wrap your mind around this. Actually, I'll start in verse 4. I'm already changing things. 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." Amen. So whose view are you operating by? Are you allowing a limited world that sees you as a stranger to determine how you do things in your life and how you're operating and how you're navigating? Or are, are you allowing a limitless father that sees you as a family? To, are you allowing him to determine how you live your life? See, if you operate by the world's view, all you get is difficulty. But if you operate by God's, you get all the promises. So let God's view determine your outlook. He's made you his family. And he's made you countless wonderful promises. Why would you look anywhere else for hope? Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.